Chapter 38, Tuesday, December 24th through Wednesday, December 25th, 1776. Christmas has come, hang on the pot. Let spits turn round and ovens be hot. Beef, pork, and poultry now provide to feast thy neighbors at this tide. Then wash all down with good wine and beer and so with mirth conclude the year. Royal Virginia Almanac. I spent the day before Christmas fighting a holly bush with a pair of scissors. Madam required its twigs and berries for her decorating schemes. My morning dash to the prison, pump, and tavern had gone wonderful fast. There were no new messages to pass from Curzon's companion to Captain Mort's, and the doctor secured by the rich Bridgebane family had delivered potions and bleedings to all, as promised. Curzon was spending most of his days sleeping, but he was not dead. And it was Christmas Eve day. The holly bits were tied with pine branches and set on the sills of the street-facing windows. Glass bowls of red berries were set on small tables in the drawing room, library, and the front parlor. Madam had two soldiers hang a ball of mistletoe in the front hall. This provided great merriment among the men and some blushing on the part of their wives. I'd never seen a house decorated with tree branches to celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus, but it did pretty up the place. The best was when Madam told us to hang dried rosemary throughout. That cut right through the lingering stench of boots and belchings. In keeping with tradition, I was to have Christmas Day free from work. I pondered hard on what I should do with so many hours for myself. Christmas at home had meant eating Mama's bread pudding with maple syrup and nutmeg and reading the Gospel of Matthew out loud whilst Ruth played in Mama's lap. I was miles away from celebrating like that. I tried to bury the remembery, but it kept floating to the top of my mind like a cork in a stormy sea, and foolish tears spilled over. I finally decided to treat myself to a long stroll through all of New York, from the waterfront north to Chambers Street, and, and a side-to-side wander from the East River to the North River, with, which someone had call, taken to calling the Hudson. For one day, my legs would be my own, not at the beck and call of others. On Christmas morning, Lady Seymour presented me with a new pair of black leather shoes that did not pinch any of my toes. Madam gave the soldier wives each a coin. She gave me nothing. When we returned home from the service at St. Paul's Chapel, Madam explained that my day off would begin as soon as I had finished serving the midday meal. Sarah had cooked it in advance. A sirloin of beef, smoked ham, onion pie, and a plum pudding for dessert. Master and Madam both filled up on the onion pie and hardly touched the fresh-baked bread. Lady Seymour ate enough for an undersized mouse. I ate porridge and beef for my Christmas dinner, a right curious combination, but a tasty one. As I cleared away the table, Madam informed me that my day off would begin after I brought in wood and washed up the dishes. Lady Seymour fired off a cannon blast of a glare at her, but Madam pretended not to notice, and the Master kept his face planted in his newspaper. There had not been heat rising between the two women for days. I mean, there had been heat rising between the two women for days. Madam was prepared to, to, row, the aunt to row the aunt to Charleston to get rid of her. After the meal, the master went to order the carriage to take them to some admiral's house for eggnog. Lady Seymour said she was going to rest and required nothing me. As the lady limped to her chamber and the master disappeared down the stairs, I picked up the tray that held the last of the dishes. Madam poured herself another cup of tea. One moment, girl, she said. I paused. 
Yes, ma'am? Madam said nothing while she stirred the sugar into her tea. She sipped, wrinkled her nose, added another spoonful, stirred, then sipped again. She set the teacup in the saucer and examined, examined the walnut tarts on the plate before her. I stood like a statue holding the tray. Would she take away the rest of my day? Force me to wash the table linens or starch the master's shirts? Madame gave her tea another stir. You've been idling around the Bridewell prison. My heart stopped. She picked up a tart, considered its scorched bottom, and returned it to the plate. My husband's aunt says that you visit the prison at her direction, bringing table scraps not good enough for pigs. She declared that forgiving and caring for the enemy is doing the Lord's work. My heart started up again, racing so fast I thought it might escape my body. Madame picked up a second tart and scratched off the scorched bits with her knife before taking a bite. She chewed, sipped more tea, and swallowed. My husband's aunt is a blithering idiot who's completely lost her wits. You should have told me of her requests at once. She finally looked at me, but her eyes, her eyes cold as frozen coins. You represent this house, girl. Your visits could put us under suspicion of having rebel tendencies. I will not be ruined by you, be it through innocence, as Aunt proclaims, or insolence, which I suspect. I forbid you to go to the prison. My arm shook from the weight of the tray, as well as her words. She could do anything, order me to the stocks, another branding, or a public whipping of hundreds of lashes. She could beat me herself. She could sell me as she had done Ruth, only place me with the cruelest master who'd work me to death in days. The pearl of sweat trickled down my cheek. Madame finished the tart and wiped the corners of her mouth with her fingertip. While my husband's aunt lives here, my hands are tied. She reached for another tart. But soon... But she'll be gone soon, one way or another, and Elihu will be in England. She popped the entire tart in her mouth, chewed, then licked her fingers. That is the day you should fear, girl. After the carriage left and dishes were washed and Lady Seymour was sound asleep, I started my free day, still trembling from Madame's threat. How could I get word to Curzon that I couldn't bring food any longer? Would Dibden let him starve if I stopped being his messenger? What if I ignored Madame's rule and continued to visit the Bridewell? I walked block after block, pondering. I walked past the rope works and the brewery to the orchards on the east side, silent under the snow. I walked past houses that had letters GR, George Rex, carved into the front door, property stolen in the name of the king. Like, like Madame had carved her letters into my soul, burned the mark into my skin, she can do anything. I can do nothing. The ashes of sadness and the buzzing bees of my melancholy all spun a storm inside of me, and I walked and walked until the new shoes rubbed blisters all over my feet and the blisters popped. I took off the shoes and walked in the snow. Once my feet were frozen enough, the blisters didn't hurt. As the sun ran for the west, rowdy songs started up in the taverns and groggeries. 
I found myself on the shore of the North River, just above the battery. Empty rowboats were tied up to a wharf. As the tide pulled out to the ocean, they bobbed and bumped against each other. A few lights twinkled across the water in faraway New Jersey. I thought of all the ancestors waiting at the water's edge for their stolen children to come home. Waiting and waiting and waiting. A thought surfaced through my ashes. She cannot chain my soul. Yes, she can hurt me. She'd already done so. But what was one more beating? A flogging, even. I would bleed. Or not. Scar. Or not. Live. Or not. But she could no longer harm Ruth. And she could not hurt my soul. Not unless I gave it to her. This was a new notion to me, and a curious one. A group of soldiers singing loud as they could swayed down the street, very muddy and drink. I hid in the shadows until they were gone, then headed back to Wall Street. I passed several houses filled with Christmas carols, Joy to the World, and I Saw Three Ships, and the First Noel. A fat candle glowed on a parlor windowsill of a house on a corner, set there to guide someone home. The Lochtons and Lady Seymour were all retired for the night by the time I returned. The house was still empty of soldiers and their wives. I built up the fire in the hearth, set my shoes and damp stockings to dry in front of it, and rubbed a calendula salve on my blisters. Christmas, Mama's voice reminded me. Keep Christmas. For the second time on the very same day, tears threatened. I rubbed them away and vowed not to cry again. Twas a nuisance. I found myself studying the loaf of bread on the table, a sharp knife showing up in my hand, and the loaf was soon cut into fat slices. A chipped crockery bowl appeared from the pantry, alongside the butter and eggs and milk and the sugar loaf, and the nutmeg grater and the small amber flask. I baked me a maple syrup bread pudding in the Rhode Island style. While it cooked, I cleaned myself good and proper, and thought about stealing a piece of Madame's rose-scented soap, but that would have made me smell like her. I preferred to smell strong, like lye. I washed my arms and legs, in the back of my neck and my ears and my face, and I dried myself with a soft, clean rag. I frowned as I stepped back into my clothes. I'd grown some, and they didn't fit proper. I'd let out the seams of the bodice as much as I could, and taken out the hem of the skirt. Much more growing, and I'd look a right scandal. But I wouldn't think on that now. I was trying to make Christmas. I pulled on my dry stockings and stepped into my new shoes, even though they rubbed fierce on the pop blisters. I put the bowl of bread pudding into a basket, tied on my cloak, and wound up my hands in rags to keep the frost from biting. I walked out the back, back door. It was not yet midnight, so in truth, twas still the day I could call my own. I set my path westward to the burned-over district, to Canvas Town. The line where September's fire had stopped was sharp cut. First a house with no damage, next a house still bearing black streaks of soot and smoke, then a field of ruin with makeshift hovels crafted from tent, brick, and scorched timbers. Rats nibbled on frozen garbage heaps. The smell of the fire still lingered, tainted with the smell of filth and decay. But in the bleakness, there were spots of hope. A wreath was stuck on the front of a tent, children's clothes hung from a clothesline, stiff with ice but still sweet-looking. A butter churn stood watch over a neat stack of fresh split wood. 
Smoke swirled slow from the top of a chimney, dipped at the roof line, then rose up to the stars. I lifted my face to the sky, and for the first time in much too long, I prayed. I prayed as hard as I could, without words or shapes or fancy talking. I just prayed. When I was done, I felt cleaner than I had after my bath. I walked on until I found a hut built against a lone brick wall. From inside came sounds of a family, the papa's low rumble, the mama's bright laugh, giggling children who had been allowed to stay up much too late and who did not want to fall asleep. I greeted them through the piece of canvas that serves as their front door. The hovel fell silent. Then the canvas was pushed aside and the father stepped out, a musket in his hand. His wife came right behind him, though he told her to stay inside. It took some convincing to explain my mission but I spoke polite and firm and held out the bread pudding, and the children snuck out in their night clothes and just about dove into the bowl. The mother took the basket and said, Thank you, and then, Thank you again, and then, Thank you most, most kindly. And they went back inside. I hummed a carol as I walked away, finally feeling at peace. <laughs>